0: This is
1: a very unstable world now, more than ever it seems, but I'm going to share with you a source of stability that will make you unshakable when everything around you is being shaken, and that is your calling your identity as children of the covenant. We draw that name for God's people out of Acts chapter 3 verse 25. Peter is preaching to a crowd of Jewish people that have gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they were there to witness the birth of the church, though they did not realize it. And right after that, Peter prayed for the man at the gate, beautiful, who was crippled from his mother's womb. He jumped up, he went leaping and praising God, and the crowd was amazed And Peter preached a powerful sermon. And in that sermon, he made this statement in verse 25 of Acts chapter 3. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Now, he was preaching to a predominantly Jewish or Israelite audience. However, because we have been grafted into Israel and we are part of God's covenant nation, This title applies to all who are walking with God in this new covenant era. We are children of the prophets and children of the covenant. Now, whatever you have been sired by, you owe your existence to. Whoever you can trace as your parentage, you owe your existence to. That is true naturally, and that is also true spiritually that two things have produced this chosen generation, this holy nation, this special people, this remnant in the world that belong to God. And that is the influence of the prophets from Enoch onward and the influence of the covenants that God has established in this world. And together the prophets and the covenants have produced supernaturally of people who walk with God, who are overcomers in all things. Regardless of what you face in life, you are an overcomer if you are a child of the covenant. Now, let me define what a covenant is. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties, each binding himself to fulfill certain obligations. Notice I use the word binding more than once because there's a certain kind of bonding and binding related to a covenant relationship, and it is a two-way street. God binds himself to you and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then you, in a response to that kind of holy commitment, should say, Lord, to the best of my ability, by your help and by your grace, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And so there is a mutual commitment that is lifelong and even lasts beyond our departure from this world. It is a powerful, powerful insight. Now let me go back to the original languages. In the Hebrew language, the word translated covenant is bereath, and it means a pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. And that's a reference to a sacrificial animal being divided into and the pieces laid to either side. And we'll go into the metaphorical application of that, the symbolic representation of that in a little while but it means a pact made, not only a pact between God and human beings, but a pact between human beings that are covenanting with each other. But when you move into the New Testament, the word that is translated covenant means something quite different. It is diatheke, and that means a will or a testament revealing an inheritance that is enforced at the death of the testator. A will or an inheritance revealing a will or a testament rather, revealing an inheritance that is enforced at the death of the testator. So, those are much different revelations about the nature of a covenant. And of course, the New Testament from Matthew to the book of Revelation is the revelation of the inheritance that belongs to those who are in covenant with God during this era. In the Old Testament, it is represented by this symbolic ritual that went on whenever a covenant was established. Now, there have been nine major covenants established by God in this world. There have been minor covenants that we will also touch on, But there are nine major covenants. Number one is the covenant of creation. Number two is the covenant of redemption. Both of those covenants were made with Adam. And every covenant has a mediator. And in those two cases, the mediator was God's first created man, Adam. The third covenant is the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah. The fourth covenant is the Abrahamic covenant that God made with that great patriarch of the nation of Israel. The fifth covenant is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses who brought the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. The sixth covenant is the promised land covenant, which was a very special covenant God made with those who survived the wilderness journey who were then called of God to go into the promised land and secure it. The seventh covenant is the Davidic covenant, a very beautiful covenant, especially in some of the symbolism attached to it that we'll touch on a little later also. The eighth covenant is the new covenant, and that's the covenant that you and I are participating in. Very strangely, God waited until the eighth covenant to call it a new covenant, even though each one of the preceding covenants was new as compared to the one before it. For instance, the covenant of redemption was a new covenant compared to the covenant of creation. The covenant God made with Abraham was a new covenant compared to the covenant he had made with Noah. So why did God wait until the eighth covenant to call it the new covenant? I believe because one of the predominant characteristics of this covenant is the fact that when you participate in it, God makes all things new. You become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you put off the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And you put on the new man. And you are renewed in the spirit of your mind, which means to be made new all over again. So over and over, we find that word new associated with the eighth covenant, the new covenant. And by the way, the number eight is the number associated with something being new. It means a new beginning, a new start, which is exactly what happens when you find this salvation that comes through the born-again experience. Why does it mean that? Well, the eighth day is the beginning of a new week. The eighth note is the beginning of a new scale. And so it represents a new beginning. Thank God for that. In fact, you can have a new beginning every single day in the New Covenant. Now, what is the ninth covenant? I haven't left that out. I was waiting intentionally till this moment to draw it out to you because the eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant, is the ninth covenant, and it draws certain eternal elements from the eight preceding covenants. Those beginning covenants all dealt with certain things that needed to be dealt with in the particular era or time in which that covenant was established. But every one of the first eight covenants have everlasting application on a certain level. And when you draw all those everlasting elements out of the first eight covenants, fuse together and combine together, they become the final covenant that will take us from time to into eternity, when God said, behold, I make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we are the beginning of something that will finally overflow to a universal transformation of the entire cosmos. Not only naturally, but spiritually, everything is going to be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're the beginning of that process. Now, you need to understand this, and this will surface in future programs we do on this subject also. There are five elements to every covenant. Whenever you find a major covenant in the Bible, you'll find these five elements. Number one, the words of the covenant. There's almost always commandments and promises, blessings and curses associated with a covenant. Always, you'll find some kind of divine communication that gives the terms of the covenant. And incidentally, covenants are not something that human beings dreamed up and then offered to God as a possible way for us to be restored. These are all God's ideas every single covenant that's been established in this world was initiated and authored by God. So God is very committed to the restoration of the human race. And that's what these progressive covenants are. Step by step, they're leading us to the place of total, complete restoration and wholeness, God's original purpose in its final fulfillment. So, the words of the covenant. And then number two, the sacrifice of the covenant. Every covenant has some kind of sacrifice associated with it to one degree or another. Number three is the token of the covenant or the sign or symbol of the covenant. A token is a visible reminder of an invisible reality, a visible reminder of of an invisible reality. See, God knows. God knows that we human beings have a hard time sometimes wrapping our minds around spiritual concepts. So he gives us a natural indicator or a natural revelatory object in order to allow us to more fully conceptualize what he is communicating spiritually. And that's what the token does. Then number four, you have the place of the covenant. Usually a covenant is made by God with some human being or human beings in a specific place. And the place is very important. It carries a lot of symbolic value. Like real estate people say, location, 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 right? Well, God is very mindful of the location where he makes these covenants because he's communicating mysterious messages through the location he chooses. And then finally, number five, is the mediator of the covenant. Usually God has an individual that he makes this covenant with, and then through that particular individual, the covenant is conveyed to all those who participate in it. Now, I want to share... Three examples out of the Bible of covenants that were made by God in this world and how these five aspects of a covenant are revealed and certain other aspects of this covenant making, covenant revealing, covenant establishing God that we serve. He is the one who makes the covenant. He reveals the covenant. He establishes the covenant, and then he watches over his covenant to fulfill it. For a few moments, let's visit the Noahic covenant. I'm taking you to Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, where God said, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, speaking to Noah, and with your descendants after you. Part of the reason I wanted to bring that out is because the covenant overflowed from Noah to his offspring. And I believe you and I have a right to claim covenantal transfer to our sons and daughters, our grandsons and granddaughters. They have to make a decision on their own whether or not to walk in the covenant and be connected in covenant relationship with God. However, they have a serious and definite advantage compared to people who do not have a spiritual heritage passed down to them. It was established right there with Noah. God said, I will make a covenant with you and with your offspring, your descendants after you. Now, there were words associated with the Noahic covenant. For instance, God, for the first time, allowed the eating of meat, and he prohibited eating meat with blood in it. The blood had to be drained out. Strangely, that was part of the covenant. Of course, part of the first covenant, the covenant of creation, was God telling them what to eat. And it was fruits and vegetables and nuts, a vegetarian diet. But now God allows meat. He also picked out one sin and hammered on it. He prohibited murder and said that if someone committed that sin, it would come back on them in like manner they would be killed. And then he repeated or echoed what he had originally told Adam in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply, which is a command and unawakened potential. And so God wanted to fill the world once again with God-fearing, God-loving people that would inherit a covenant relationship from Noah. Unfortunately, it didn't happen because it depended on human willpower And human beings respecting and reverencing the history of the covenant that was passed down to them, which unfortunately human beings do not regard as highly as they should sometimes. What about the sacrifice of the covenant, the Noahic covenant specifically? In Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, we read how Noah had exited the ark. Can you imagine the euphoria? And yet the sober feeling simultaneously that Noah and his family felt to realize they had been rescued of all the world and now it's a pristine paradise again. But the reminder that everyone else had perished must have been an overwhelming thought that just gripped their minds. But Noah wanted to start things right. And so after God brought them out of the ark and gave them this covenant commitment that he made with them, then Noah in response built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. Notice that it was not just two of every animal in the ark. If you'll read it carefully, there was two of every unclean animal, but there was seven of every clean animal because there were three male and female couples of each animal, but then one was saved just to be sacrificed for the rest. And I call that a picture of the ministry, those who are set aside to become a living sacrifice for the rest of the body of Christ. But he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, a burnt offering was an offering that was reduced to ashes on an altar, and it was a symbolic statement. The offerer was saying, let this animal that is being sacrificed be a picture of me, because I want to be consumed with the holy fire of devotion and commitment to God and to the principles that he holds dear, and I want ego to be burnt out of me. I want pride to be burnt out of me. I want anger to be burnt out of me. I want lust to be burnt out of me. See, it was a prayerful, passionate statement, like the burning fire that consumed the sacrifices on the altar. That fire of passion for God was burning in the heart of the offerer. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, the Bible says a sweet savor. What was it God smelled? Is God attracted to the smell of burning meat? If so, there ought to be a glory cloud over every steakhouse in the land. I don't think that's what attracted God, but it was the burning heart of devotion behind the burning sacrifice that attracted God. God smelled a sweet savor And then the Lord said in his heart, watch this, watch it. I will never curse the ground anymore for man's sake. God said, never again will I curse the ground for man's sake. So one man in covenant with God, responding with a passionate sacrifice was enough to lift a global curse from the entire world, because from the point of Adam's fall onward, the ground was cursed. It was almost impossible to grow any kind of productive crop because God has said, thorns and thistles it will bring forth unto you. Cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. But one man made the difference. And if Noah walking in covenant with God and responding with passion toward God, Could lift a curse from the entire world, then I would dare to say if you walk in covenant with God and passionately respond to Him, you can lift a curse from your entire family and possibly even your city, your state, your nation, and have an impact around the world. Your life matters more than you may realize. And then, God gave the token of the covenant. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, God promised, I will set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign, the New King James Version says. It's the Hebrew word oath, O-T-H. And the King James Version says token. See, every covenant has a token or a natural sign of an invisible reality. God said, it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth. So now God is expanding the covenant. It's not only to Noah. It's not only to Noah's descendants. It's not only to the animals in the ark, because God at one point said that, but it's a covenant with the earth in its entirety when you treat something or someone in covenant with God in a negative way, you reap terrible consequences. And I believe that's why in the book of Revelation, you find the saints appealing to God that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. Because God is not only in covenant with his people, God is in covenant with the earth. And to contaminate the earth, to destroy the earth with some of the horrendous things that people are doing now to contaminate the atmosphere, to contaminate the water supply, to do things with genetic manipulation that changes the DNA of certain species, and lines, that's a very wrong thing. And the appeal to God was to destroy those who destroyed the earth. And that's a very serious thing to contemplate. But anyway, God said, I will set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So that whenever you look on a rainbow, you're reminded that God promised that the world would never be destroyed by a flood again. It's God's visible reminder of his invisible promise. And I'm sure that's the truth. The world will never Be destroyed by a flood again. So you can expand that to say that the rainbow is not only representative of a singular promise, but of all the promises of God. That's a symbol that belongs to the people of God. It belongs to those who embrace biblical truth. I don't care who tries to hijack it, the rainbow is a symbol of receiving promises from God. And there are 7,487 promises in God's word. I claim them all in the name of Jesus. I want them manifested in my life because I'm a child of the promise. And so are you, if we are children of the covenant. Now, what was the place of the covenant? We have the mediator of the covenant. That's Noah. The place of the covenant was Mount Ararat where the ark came to rest, where the ark came to rest. It was a place of rest and a covenant is a place of rest. When you enter into it, when the world around you is chaotic, you can be at peace. When the world around you is in such a critical mess that it looks like there's no way out you can still maintain confidence toward God and contentment in him. The ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And, of course, you have the token of the covenant, the sacrifice of the covenant, and the words of the covenant. I brought all five elements out concerning the Noahic covenant. Now I want to bring out just a select part of the Abrahamic covenant. This is so powerful. Let me take you to Genesis chapter Fifteen. Now remember, the Hebrew word that is translated covenant is bereith. B-E-R-I-Y-T-H is the way it's usually spelled, but pronounced bereith. And it means a pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. And I've read historically that at times when tribal leaders came together to become one, to defend each other, to help each other, in times of need, they would make a covenant with each other. And sometimes that involved the slaughtering of an animal, and they would cut it into and lay the pieces to either side. And the tribal leaders, the covenanting parties, would walk through those pieces of flesh as a symbolic gesture. It would be a way of saying, let something just as serious as death itself come on me if I fail to keep this covenant. Let death stalk me until it overtakes me uh, if I fail to keep this covenant. That's how serious and how sacred it was. And also it was a statement of saying this covenant is as serious as death itself. I call death upon myself if I break it and I recognize it's as serious as death itself. Now, let me read to you out of Genesis 15. Now, all through the Abrahamic story in Genesis, from Genesis 12 onward, you find all kinds of covenant language, covenant commitments, things that God says he will do for Abraham is primarily a blessing covenant. But here, it really pulls something out that is remarkable. Genesis 15, verse 9 through verse 18. So God said to Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to God and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite to the other. But Abraham did not cut the birds. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. See, because when you start moving toward a covenant relationship with God, there will be demonic like vultures, and I'm speaking spiritually. There will be demons of hell that will attack you to try and prevent this covenant fusion from taking place. Vultures feed on dead things, and the enemy would like to bring death into your life. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? And so he drove them away, and you've got to drive away the demonic influences from your life as well. But when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now, isn't that a surprise? God covenants with him, And then the first thing God tells him is that for four centuries, your children are going to be afflicted in a foreign land. So even though we are children of the covenant, it doesn't mean we will not face troubles and problems and opposition and challenges. But then God said, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions or great substance, the King James says. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or not yet complete, which is very strange. There had to be a peak of sinfulness among the Amorites reached before the judgment of annihilation came. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. It was an appearance of God. It was an epiphany where God appeared in the form of a burning torch or a smoking oven that passed between those pieces of flesh. We are not told that Abram ever walked through the pieces of flesh. He probably did. But we are told that God did. And the next verse says, on the same day, the Lord, or in the original Hebrew, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, on the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Before the descendants even existed, God foresaw it. God promised a promised people and God promised a promised land. So he created a people or or he brought forth a purpose in Abraham that would eventually bring forth those people, but he prepared for them in advance and God's prepared for you in advance if you're one of his covenant people, and God said it will be from the river of Egypt which is the Nile to the great river Euphrates, and Israel has never occupied the fullness of that inheritance, and I don't believe they will until the era called the millennial kingdom, the messianic era yet to come. Now I have one more thing I want to bring out, and then I'm going to close. And that is a promise God made when he established a covenant with David. And I'm ending with this because I want you to see the stability of a covenant, the power of a covenant, the unbreakableness of a covenant, how if you are in covenant with God, his purpose, and you cannot be Opposed cannot be successfully opposed, cannot be thwarted, cannot be overcome. Listen to what God said to David or concerning David. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. The main purpose behind the Davidic covenant was the preservation of his throne and his dynasty. And God said, you'll have to stop the natural order of the solar system before you can stop my covenant promise from coming to pass. All the demons of the world would have to try and gather on the horizon to prevent the sun from coming up tomorrow morning before they could stop the covenant commitment God made to David and the covenant commitment God made to you. And they would be utterly thwarted in their attempt because they cannot stop the sun from rising nor the night from falling. Neither can the enemy and all his plots and plans stop you if you are a child of the covenant. I'm so glad you chose to listen to this, and I pray that you will be certain and tune in to the next podcast because I'm going to do at least two more podcasts on what it is to be children of the covenant.